0: Well, how many of you guys have one of these, (laughs) right? Probably almost everybody in the room, right? Well, you have one for one reason and one reason only. Because somebody had ambition. Ambition. Ambition, the dictionary defines ambition as having an earnest desire to achieve something and the determination to get it done. It's not just having a dream, it's having the drive to accomplish it. And at one point, somebody, had a dream and the drive, and they made this happen. His name was Steve Jobs. He had a boatload of ambition, and he put that in your pocket, basically. He and his buddy, Steve Wozniak, they invented the first personal computer when they were only 21 years old. They got together. And before this, computers were actually gigantic. They were monstrous. They were tubes and glass and plastic and all kinds of stuff, and they took up whole rooms. But Steve, and his buddy Steve Wozniak, they decided they wanted to cram all that stuff into a box that would fit on your desk. And they began to make the first computers at that point. They wanted, their dream was to put a computer on everybody's desk in their home in America. Well, they took their idea to Atari first. They didn't want much, they just wanted a modest salary and a chance to work on their idea of a computer. And uh, as you may know, they got turned down. Then they went to Hewlett Packer. Now, Hewlett Packer did exactly the same thing. It was the same story. Rejection, right? We don't want you here. Now, can you imagine? I mean, think about how much those two companies are kicking themselves today, right? If you could get in when, the, when they were first starting. Atari doesn't even exist anymore, by the way. If you had Apple behind you, you would exist today, right? Well, they rejected them and they kicked them out the door, basically, but these two friends realized at that point that they were the only ones who really believed in this impossible dream of getting the computer. Now, Jobs sold his Volkswagen and Wozniak sold his calculator and they pooled their $1,300 that they had from those two things and they decided to start Apple Computer with $1,300. And they named it after the summer that Jobs spent working, his favorite summer working in an orchard. That's why they named it Apple. Well, their ambition did not stop there because the Steves knew that they had both the engineering and the creative side of things, but they did not have the business sense. So Steve Jobs, who had quite the ambition, as I've already mentioned, decided he was going to aim high. He needed someone to do the business, so he went and found the president of PepsiCo and asked him to back a couple of nerds who wanted to do the impossible. Okay, now the president of PepsiCo is no stooge, He was asked to give up his lucrative job to try to make this dream of a couple nerds happen. Well, he said no, right? He said no, but he uh, had Steve Jobs on his tail, and Steve Jobs would not take no for an answer. He came back again and again and again. He would not take no for an answer, and finally, in a last-ditch effort, he came to the president of PepsiCo, and he said this. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want to change the world? Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want to change the world? And as they say, the rest is history, right? Because you have that in your hand now because of that guy not taking no for an answer. These people had ambition. They had both a desire and a drive to get it done. The trouble is that they were only worried about the short game. They were only worried about changing the world for the rest of your life but Jesus and his followers, they're playing the longest game there is. They're interested in changing the world, not for the here and now, but for forever, for eternity. They are the ones who have not just ambition, but spiritual ambition. They want to change the world in ways that go far beyond the years that we'll spend on this planet. Well, the woman of the hour, the lady that we're going to be learning about today, she was full of this spiritual ambition, this beyond this life kind of ambition. She and her gifted husband would accomplish many things for God. They would be compelled to, and they would be ready to do anything it takes to get it done. Her desire and her drive put together are brilliantly illustrated in a story in the Gospel of Matthew that we know of as the parable of the soils. Our theme verse is gonna come at the end of that story but we need to back it up and figure out because our theme verse is all about spiritual ambition but why did it come there? What does it mean? How come it ends up at the end of that story? So we gotta back up a little bit and I've got to remind you what Jesus' parable or story that tells an important spiritual truth is all about. Jesus is speaking of a sower a sower who went out and basically is a farmer, and he's throwing seed. Now, the seed is going to have different results depending on the soil it lands in. The seed in the story is the gospel, or the good news that even though all of us have sinned, that none of us have lived perfect, and all of us are going to have to stand before a holy God one day to answer for what we've done, that there is still hope. There is still good news. There is still hope because even though we've sinned, And we deserve punishment for that. God sent his son. He sent his son to pay for our sins on the cross as our substitute so that we wouldn't have to pay for them. Jesus would take the punishment that we deserve for all the things we've ever done wrong. That's the hope, that's the good news, that even though we deserve punishment, Jesus took it for us. And he takes the sins of all those, all those who will come to him and confess their sins and who will ask for his forgiveness. And everybody does this the same way. I don't care if you were born here or in India. I don't care if you are born now or 500 years ago. Every person has to come to him the same way. They look at that information, that Jesus died to pay for our sins, and they decide, I, I need to respond to that rightly. The Bible says we respond to that by turning from our sin and our life of independence from him, and trusting in his payment for our sins, and then going out and living a life that reflects that. That's the good news, that's the hope. That's the gospel or the seed in Jesus' story. But the seed is gonna hit a whole bunch of different soils or a whole bunch of different kinds of people. And each person is going to have a different kind of response in the story. The first, the first of the soils, is the path. If the seed lands here, the birds are gonna snatch it up before it can even break the ground, Jesus says. These people, they hear the truth that Jesus offers salvation from sin and that the judgment we deserve can be taken away and they pay no attention to it. Basically, the seed gets dropped there and it gets whisked away before there's even a thought. Then the next soil is the rocky kind. When the seed lands here, it springs up in new growth right away, but the soil is very shallow, and when the sun beats down on this kind of person, the plant is all withered and dies right away. This person immediately responds to the gospel or the good news that Jesus saves, and they look like a real Christian. The trouble is when difficulty comes, trials come, they just bail out, they're done. They don't last. The third soil in Jesus' story is the thorny one. And again, here, the seed of the gospel shoots up right away and it looks like new growth and it's amazing and it's wonderful, but the progress is impeded immediately by the thorns that grow up around it and they choke out the life. This person is someone who hears the good news and they're all in. In fact, they totally look like a Christian. They decide they're in with God, but then they figure out that they like the things of the world a lot more than they like God. And pretty soon they abandon their pursuit of him. And then there's the fourth soil. The fourth soil Jesus calls the good soil. And uh, he calls it good because this one is the only soil that produces results that last. These people are the real Christians and the real Christians that stay forever in their Christianity. And this is where the theme verse of our day lands. Matthew 13, 23, it says, as for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and he yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60 and in another 30. This good soil kind of person, they hear and they understand the truth. That's what this verse says. They have a receptive heart. They get it. They turn from their sin and they trust in Christ and they live the rest of their lives for him, which is awesome. It shows up in their lives, though. Their decision to turn and trust shows up in their actions, their attitudes, their words, their motivations. From then on, that's what the good soil ends up doing. They bear fruit because they're really Christians. In fact, Jesus says in the Bible that our fruit actually proves that we're Christians. But Matthew 13, 23 also shows us something else here. It shows us the results or the fruit that a Christian bears will vary from person to person. We can see that right here. One's got 100, one's got 60, one's got 30, right? But there are going to be results. Think of it, that 30 seeds, that 30 seeds result is a 3,000% increase from where they started that one seed becoming 30, is a 3,000% increase. The 60 seeds is a 6,000% increase, and the 100 is a 10,000% increase from the one seed they started with. The results here are phenomenal. Well, Jesus is trying to say that real Christians don't just last, they see results, or they see fruit in their life. The question is, how much will they produce? How much will they produce? Well, it's not based on the seed or the soil. The seed is the same the soil is good, and the sun even beats down on them and blesses them, right? The difference is going to come in the person's giftedness, their opportunities, their enthusiasm, their prayer life, their drive, their obedience. The the results are gonna differ because of all those things that a person does. So the question we have today is what kind of soil are we? Right? Are we the hard and unresponsive kind? where you hear the truth, even today, you hear the truth and it's just snatched up immediately, boom, you're out of here, you're done. Or are we maybe the temporary kind of Christian, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, that looks all in but doesn't bear fruit? Are we the good soil? The good soil who lasts a lifetime and who bears fruit forever and continues on. If you don't know what you are, if you don't know where you land on this whole thing, You need to talk to the person who brought you or the person who's your table hostess because it's not just about having a good tea here. It's about are you gonna pay for your sins or is Jesus gonna pay for your sins? There's only two options, really. I mean, there's four soils, but only one of them has Jesus to pay for their sins. So if you don't know, make sure you talk to the person. I mean, we want you to have a great day, but we really want you to have a great forever. So, well, We gotta do that first. But then there's a lot of good soil types in our midst here. So what about you good soil types? The ones who already have it right. Well, what are you living for? Are you spending your hours and your days on sugar water? Or are you spending it on things that are gonna change the world forever? The lady we're gonna talk about today, she didn't just have ambition, she had spiritual ambition. And uh, I know if you're a real Christian, you already have the desire, because God says when you're a real Christian, he makes you new on the inside. You have the desire to please him already, if you've got this right. But the lady in our story today, she's gonna pump up your drive, she's gonna pump up your desire, she's gonna pump you up to want to grow more fruit in your life and be more ambitious spiritually to bear as much fruit as you possibly can. She is definitely the 10,000% variety of results. And let me just introduce you to her. Her name is Susanna Thompson. And Susanna Thompson, she was born on January 15th in 1832. She was born in a comfortable suburb in London. She was born in a well-to-do family. She had a good education. She got to travel with her family, she got to Um, have all the luxuries, and she actually even grew up going to church. But it wasn't until she was a teenager that she began to see people at church who, uh, well, they were seeking after God. They were that good soil. They started seeking the things of God, they surrendered their life to Him, they got baptized, and she started to yearn for the things of God as she watched them. But she was unsure of where she stood with God. She had a lot of questions. She didn't know where she really was with him. She didn't quite get it yet. She did not have that understanding of that fourth soil, that good soil. Well, people thought she was a Christian, and she would have even reluctantly agreed with them, but when it really came down to it in her heart, she wasn't there. Well, the man who would become her husband, he grew up quite differently than she did. She grew up in downtown London. He grew up in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere in, a, in the country, in Essex, England. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and he was born on June 19th, 1834, a year and a half after Susanna was. But he was basically born in the middle of a hick town in the middle of nowhere. He was uh, the first of 17 children. (laughs) Yeah, the first of 17 children, and because his dad and his granddad were both pastors, he was a PK times two (laughs) growing up in their house. Well, although he was very passionate, even as a young boy about holiness and righteousness, uh, young Charles Spurgeon didn't quite get it till a little later, but even there's a story told when he was six years old how he went into a local bar, which I'm not sure how that works, but he went into a local bar and he gave some one of his granddad's churchgoers quite the rebuke because he found him drinking and smoking at the bar. So he was very into righteous living, but he didn't quite own that yet himself. And uh, when he became a teenager, he was like 15 years old, he got caught in a snowstorm and he ended up uh, walking into a church, ducking into a church for a Sunday service. And it was at that point in this little church in the middle of nowhere that this pastor grabbed his heart. And for the first time, he understood his own sin. And that pastor was preaching on Isaiah 45:22, which says, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And Charles Spurgeon says he had the experience that he felt like that pastor was talking right to him. He saw his own sin. He saw his own need to turn from it and have Jesus pay for his sin so that he wouldn't have to someday. Well, he turned from his sin right then, trusted Christ, and begged for God's salvation. And soon, he was baptized in the river. Okay, not during the snowstorm, but later. He was baptized in a river near the local ferry stop a little bit later. Charles Spurgeon would preach his first sermon at 16. He was basically tricked into it. A man came to him and said, I need you to go with this guy and I need you to encourage him about his uh, preaching he's going to do tonight. He was like, okay. But unbeknownst to Charles, he had told the other man that was walking with him exactly the same thing about Charles. Well, as they're walking along, hey, what are you going to preach on tonight? I don't know. What are you going to preach on tonight? Oh, whoa. Hey, wait a minute. Well, that's when they discovered they'd been set up. And Charles would not, he refused to let those people go to church and not hear something from the word of God. So he preached a sermon on the spur of the moment. Amazing. At 16, while he preached to this little group of Christians that were meeting in this little home church, and it was about a dozen or so elderly people, actually, who were there that day where he preached his first sermon. And when he got done, the one of them called out and said, hey, how old are you, son? He said, under 60. (laughs) And uh, the person said, yeah, under 16, I dare say. But they saw, even those first dozen Christians saw the potential in Charles Spurgeon, and they encouraged him that night. They could see just how gifted he was, even as a 16-year-old, with a spur-of-the-moment sermon. Within a year's time and without any formal training, he never had any formal training his whole life. Without any formal training, he took his first pastorate within a year. He was 17 years old. He took this small church outside of Cambridge and over the next two years, this preaching phenom transformed the place. He started with 40 people in his congregation. Within two years, he had 450 people attending his church. People came from all around, and the fame of Charles Spurgeon spread as they heard of this young, powerful, passionate, and creative young preacher. Well, it was about this time that he received a letter. He received a letter from William Olney, who was from the New Park Street Chapel in downtown London. This is what London looked like at that time. Remember, he was a country boy. And this is what London looked like. And they asked him to come preach at their church in downtown London. It was historic. New Park Street Chapel was a historic old church. It actually was a 100-year-old church. Had many great pastors, but at this point in time, they had been without a pastor for a little while. Because of that, their church had dwindled down to about 200 people, even though they had a congregation, a, an auditorium that would seat 1,200. But they had about 200 at the time. Well, Charles Spurgeon got their letter in the mail asking him to come preach, and he thought that they must have mistaken him for somebody else. <laughs> and so he was like, wait, am I the guy, was, wait, wait, were you trying to send this letter to me? So he wrote back immediately to confirm they were actually looking for him, and they were, of course, and they asked him to come preach. Well, he preached his first sermon there on Sunday morning, December 18, at the New Park Street Chapel, December 18th, 1853. He was 19 years old. The attendance was so dismal that morning that, I mean, Charles, he just could not wait to get back to his own congregation. I gotta get out of here. I don't wanna speak here anymore. Just let me get out of here. But he had promised that he would speak on Sunday night service, too. So uh, he had to stick around and he had to rally himself to get out there and do it and give it his all. Well, Mr. Olney, the guy who had invited him, one of the leaders of the church, he uh, felt really bad because he could see just how deflated poor Charles was, but he could see his great potential. So he went around that afternoon on Sunday and he went around and he invited everybody he could find, every family member, every friend, every churchgoer, every non-churchgoer and said, come tonight, come tonight, come tonight, hear this guy preach. Charles Spurgeon. Well, because the Olneys were friends with the Thompsons, Sarah Thompson was also in the audience that night to hear uh, Charles Spurgeon preach his second sermon in London. To say she was not impressed is to put it mildly. She did not have a love at first sight moment. Far from it, actually. Uh, and you know, in defense of her, she was raised in Victorian England in a well-to-do family, and here was a country boy that just did not meet her expectations of what a young gentleman should be like standing in front of her. Um, He was a country bumpkin for sure. He had his hideously outdated suit on. He had a black scarf wrapped around his neck. He was in terrible need of a haircut, and he was waving a blue and white polka-dotted handkerchief as he preached. (laughs) But to add insult to injury, he also had a a passionate plea for the gospel and a passionate plea to live the word of God. And she just wasn't there yet. I mean, it was falling on deaf ears when it came to Susanna. She wasn't ready for the truth. She was struggling with doubts and she didn't get it. But little did she know that the man standing in front of her would be the tool that God would use to help her see her sin and her need for Christ. Later, she would write these words, Ah, how little I then thought that my eyes looked on him who would be my life's beloved. How little I dreamed of the honor that God was preparing for me in the near future. It is a mercy that our lives are not left for us to plan, but that our Father chooses for us, or else we might at times turn away from our greatest blessings and put from us his choicest and loveliest gifts. New Park Street Chapel was in need of revival the leaders knew it, and they felt like Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the key to that. And so they sent him an offer, an offer to be their new pastor. He wrote back immediately and said, I accept it. Those were his only words. I accept it. And then when he got there, he said, the one thing he asked them to do was to pray for him. Well, God did send revival through Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He revived not only that church, but that city and that country, but he also revived the hearts of a young girl with uh, brown curls that sat in the congregation. You see, uh, as he preached, Susanna's spiritual confusion was just pressing down on her harder and harder and harder, and she knew something's not right here. I don't get this, I, and she went to her friend, her friend William Only, and she asked him for counsel. She, she poured her heart out to him, and she shared all of her questions and her concerns about her own standing before God. I don't, I don't think I'm right with God. I don't know what this is. I don't understand. I, I'm trying, but I don't get it. Well, he listened to all of her concerns, and then he decided he better ask his pastor for help. So we went to Charles, and said, what what, what do I counsel this girl? Well, pretty soon, Susanna, who was known as Susie to her family and friends, she received in her hands an illustrated copy of Charles' favorite book, Pilgrim's Progress. We we learned about the writer of that last year at RT, John Bunyan. Inside the front cover, Charles Spurgeon, her pastor, had written these words, to Miss Thompson, with desires for her progress in the Blessed Pilgrimage. From C.H. Spurgeon, April 20th, 1854. Susie says, with much trembling, I told Charles, my pastor of my state before God, and he gently led me by his preaching and by his conversation through the power of the Holy Spirit to the cross of Christ for the peace and pardon that my weary soul was longing for. Susie realized that her sin needed a payment, so she turned to God and confessed it, and she trusted in Christ to take her punishment for her sin that she deserved. Well, soon after that, she began reading much more than Pilgrim's Progress. She started reading her Bible like nobody's business with a whole new um, just enthusiasm and drive and and fresh eyes for the first time. She began reading a few chapters every day so she could read through her whole Bible in a year. She began that pattern then and then she continued it all of her life. And In fact, Charles would ask her at one point if this was a pattern she recommended and she would say, oh yes, it's something that acquaints me with all parts of scripture, even those that I might be tempted to skip. She also took a small piece of scripture every single day and meditated on it in hopes of applying it to her life. Sounds like she was doing the DBR and tanning long before we were. But she grew by leaps and bounds with new clarity and understanding of her relationship with God. Then a couple months later, Charles gave her a book of poetry, and he asked her to read one poem that was entitled On Marriage. This is what it said Seek a good wife of your God, for she is the best gift of his province. Ask yet not in bold confidence that which he has not promised. You know not his good will. Make your prayer then submissive. But leave the petition to his mercy, assured that he will deal well with you. If you are to have a wife of your youth, she is now living on the earth. Therefore think of her and pray for her well, even though you have not seen her. And then he leaned over and he asked her this question. Do you pray for him who will be your husband? Well, Susanna had never had a romantic thought about her pastor before, but ding, 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 like the light bulbs went off and she understood his intentions and she basically says at that moment she was all in, right? She was in, that was it. Um, She never thought about him like that, but now she did. Two months later, two months later on August 2nd, 1854, Charles told Susie that he loved her for the very first time and he asked her to marry him. She said, to me it was a time as solemn as it was sweet. It was with great awe in my heart that I left my beloved and I hastened to the house to an upper room and I knelt before God and I praised and I thanked him with happy tears for his great mercy in giving me the love of so good a man. If I had known then how good he was or how great he would become, I should have been overwhelmed, not so much with the happiness of being with him, but with the responsibility that such a position would entail. Hmm. Boy, she got that right. She had no idea. Well, she did understand she had the love of a good man. But she also understood in that moment in time that she was choosing a life of sacrifice and service. But oh, what a blessed life it would be. Well, during that year and a half that they were engaged, Charles' schedule moved at breakneck speed. He was continually preparing sermons. These are some of his actual sermon notes right here. He was continually traveling. He was continually preaching. Um, He was always preparing, and he would spend all of his days off, which was one day a week. He would spend his day off sitting next to Susie. They would transcribe the Sunday sermon together for publication that's how they spent their day off and you know the thing was she was a woman who was perfectly content and totally filled with joy that she got the chance to help him do all that he was supposed to accomplish for the Lord that's what she did that's what her life was all about and Charles loved her he loved her with a tenderness that permeated everything that he did But that doesn't mean it wasn't without bumps in the road. Charles was a brilliant man, and he was a passionate preacher and an amazing thinker. We're so glad that we have him in our history. But he was also a little distractible. Sometimes, once, he even introduced himself to Susie in the church lobby as though she was a stranger. (laughs) Whoopsie. Yeah, well, she kind of shrugged those things off because he just was, you know... Sometimes distractible, let's put it that way. And uh, she shrugged those off with a pretty good-natured attitude until the day that they traveled to an event together. And uh, they were in the carriage together, and they had had lunch together, and they were showing up at this preaching venue where he's going to give the sermon. And uh, by the time they arrived there, the crowd was so gigantic, it was like pressing in all around them. And Charles was so burdened for all the people that had come to listen to him preach. These are the kinds of crowds that he had. He was so burdened by all those souls that needed Christ. He was so distracted by the monumental task he had of preaching the word of God faithfully that he completely forgot she was there. In fact, as the crowd was pressing in around them, he slipped through a side door and into the auditorium and left her standing there all alone. He forgot all about her. Well, at that first moment, she was hurt. And then that second moment, she was livid. <laughs> and she stormed out of there. She didn't even wait to finish to hear him preach. She left, she went home. And she started telling her mother, what. A, okay, we won't say what she said, but you know, whatever. She was fuming about how inconsiderate he had been. Well, she says, these are her words, that my mother wisely reasoned that my chosen husband was no ordinary man, that his whole life was absolutely dedicated to God and his servants, and that I must never, ever hinder him by trying to put myself first in his heart. She says, after much good and loving counsel, my heart grew soft, and I saw that I had been very foolish and willful. Pretty soon, Charles burst through the door, and he said, Susie, Susie, where is Susie? I can't find her anywhere. Where is she? Where is she? He was so concerned. Quietly, she says, he let me tell him how indignant I was. But then he repeated my mother's lesson to me, assuring me of his deep affection for me, but pointing out that before all things, he was God's servant, and I must be prepared to yield my claims to him. Susie says that she never ever asserted her rights over Charles and what God had for him to do again. This woman was filled to the top with spiritual ambition. Well, pretty soon, she uh, wrote her testimony out, met with the leaders, and got baptized at the church, and Charles, her fiance, baptized her. He had no greater joy than sharing these wonderful moments with her, the love of his life and the partner that God had so sovereignly chosen for him. Susie and Charles were married on a cold rainy day on January 8th, 1856. People began arriving at the church super early to the point where all the the streets around the church were completely packed and a special police force was even brought in to help them deal with the crowds. The 1,200 people um, that could fit in the church filed in immediately when they opened the doors. Many people with invitations in their hand were turned away and thousands of people lined the streets that day to get a glimpse of the bride and groom. Susie says she woke up early that morning and she spent many hours in private prayer. She was awed by the responsibility that God had given her, but she was also, in her words, happy beyond expression. After they spent their honeymoon in Paris, Charles was back in the pulpit, introducing his young bride to his congregation 12 days after his wedding. Susie proved to be the partner that Charles always needed, no matter what the challenge, and boy, did they have some of those. First of all, they had, of course, the weight of responsibility of his growing ministry and the spiritual battle that came with it. Literally thousands, thousands upon thousands of people came to listen to Charles Spurgeon preach. He was known to preach up to 10 times a week. He traveled all over Europe preaching to many, many people. He also had the challenge of fame and the target that it painted on your back. Yeah, he was only 21 when they married. And to those city folk in London, they didn't still really dig that country preacher. He was a lot more hardcore than they were used to. There was just way too many people that wanted to hear him, and he was just a lot too passionate for their liking. They didn't like him a whole lot, in fact, almost every week in the newspapers, his <sighs> reputation was smeared, and he was mocked, and he, his motives were called into question almost every week in the newspapers. It was pretty tough. Then he also faced challenges with his health. He suffered from uh, kidney disease, he suffered from gout, and he suffered from depression pretty much his entire life. But through it all, Susie, she was the consummate cheerleader. She stood by his side and she was his strength. You see, God knew that Charles Burden didn't just need a wife, he needed a very specific wife. He needed one who was joyful, who was godly, who was resilient, who was filled with faith, who was encouraging and who was, yes, even independent. He needed a woman who was um, ready to love him unconditionally and she was willing to do anything to make it happen so that he could do what God called him to. Her sacrificial love for him was evident from the very beginning. Get this, girls. When they moved into their very first home, they started a pattern that would begin all of their life, all of their married life, where the best room in the house would become Charles' study in every home they ever had. She said, it was right to give the best to the one who labored the most for the Lord. She was spiritually ambitious. Another thing that Susie and Charles did right away was invest in young preachers. When they were 21 and 23 and newly married, they brought the first of those preachers into their home. Charles mentored that man, and Susie used their meager budget to support him, to cook for him, to care for him. Within five years, they had 20 pastors meeting in the basement of the church that were being trained, and this is where the pastor's college began. It would someday be called Spurgeon's College. Pretty soon they would have their own building. And they would move out of the basement of the church. In Charles Spurgeon's lifetime, 900 pastors would be trained in that college. 900 pastors would be trained, and he said the aim of the school was to train prophets, not scholars. They wanted men who would actually go and do practical pastoral ministry in the local church and not just have a head stuffed full of Bible facts. And uh, they would go to churches that were either almost dead or they would plant new churches. But in Spurgeon's lifetime, 200 churches would be planted through the graduates of the pastor's college. And 100,000 people would be baptized because of the graduates. This was during his lifetime alone. 100,000 people would be baptized because of the students that came out of his school. This school continues today. It's called Spurgeon's College and it trains men and women to do ministry 160 years after it was formed. Well, nine months after their wedding, the Spurgeons welcomed twin sons, Charles and Thomas, into their home. Well, it should have been a wonderful time of celebration, but they did not get a whole lot of chance to do that because a month after these boys were born, Susie and Charles faced one of the most devastating events of their lives. London was abuzz over young Charles and his preaching. Everybody was listening to Charles. Everybody was showing up to hear him preach. He was uh, not refined and he was not educated, but he spoke to their hearts. He was passionate, and people came in droves. From the time uh, he ended up at New Park Street Chapel, space was an issue. There were people sitting on the floor, on the railings, in the aisles. I mean, they, the, people overflowed every week. The church, I told you, held 1,200 people. It was soon expanded to hold 1,500, but it still wasn't enough room. Crowding was always an issue when Charles spoke. Eventually, they would build him a church, and it's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and it would be Charles' church for the rest of his life. It still stands today at the Elephant and Castle area of London, my family and I visited there a couple years ago when we were at Grace Life London. It's still there, but in the days of Charles Spurgeon, it took five years to build that 5,000 seat auditorium that would be his church home. And you know, five years, that's a long time to have space problems. So the church decided that they would rent a facility. They rented this one, beautiful, it's called the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And October 19th, 1856, it was the first night that Charles was to preach there, very first night. Susie was home recovering because she had had the twins a month earlier and she was praying for her husband. There were 12,000 people that crowded into that auditorium. 12,000 people came to hear Spurgeon preach and 10,000 people were in the grounds and the gardens outside of this when some troublemakers who didn't like Charles Spurgeon or his message, came into the crowd, and they yelled, fire, fire, the galleries are giving way. It wasn't true, but you know that didn't matter, right? Because chaos ensued, and by the end of the night, seven people had been trampled to death, his first night preaching there, including a pregnant woman with an almost full-term baby and 28 more people were in the hospital. It's horrible. One of the leaders of the church ran to Susie's house to give her the news because again, she wasn't there that night. They ran to give her the news and she says, we knelt by the couch and we prayed that we might have grace and strength to bear the terrible tragedy that suddenly had come upon us. Charles was inconsolable. He had to be physically picked up and removed from the pulpit that night. He was in a deep depression for days. The next morning, the newspaper, of course, was full of news of the tragedy, and they all blamed Charles for what had happened. They criticized him for renting the facility, for the narrow doorways and aisles, for the size of the crowd that gathered. They criticized him for praying in the midst of the chaos. Their nastiness and their hatred towards Charles bewildered them. But because of the good, faithful soldier that he was, and his crawl in, don't call him kind of attitude, he came back to his pulpit two weeks later and he continued preaching in the Surrey Gardens Music Hall until the Metropolitan Tabernacle was completed. He was only 22 years old when this happened. Well, Charles recovered, sort of. But he was never quite the same, physically or emotionally. Spiritually, yes, strong, strong, strong. Physically and emotionally, it took its toll on him. But Susie, in his times of sadness, was always there. She poured herself out for him in prayer. She surrounded him with scripture. Literally, she would put scripture up all around their house. She was like Aaron and her to Moses in the Old Testament where they held up the arms of Moses, Aaron and her did. She was that for him. One of the many passages that she put up in their bedroom, she had framed and put up on the walls in their bedroom, was Matthew 5, 11 and 12. It says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And she would read it to Charles every morning before he left the house. Well, as you can imagine, the twins would become a focus of their 24 seven discipleship in their home. And in God's sovereignty, these two boys would be the only children that Charles and Susie would ever get to have. But with Charles' ministry just only ramping up, he was a young man and everybody was excited about him in London. Okay, everybody except his critics were excited about him in London. Um, They knew that most of the training was going to fall to Susie the training for these two boys. But like his father before him, Charles understood that he should never be worried about this. His father had been a pastor too and he had initially been concerned about leaving his home um, and training of his children to go out and serve the local church. But his father says he stopped being concerned about it when he came home unexpectedly and he heard his wife. He heard his wife praying and pleading earnestly before God for the salvation of her children, especially for young Charles, who was the oldest and the most strong-willed. Charles says, my father felt he could safely go about his father's business because his dear wife was caring so well for the spiritual matters of the boys and girls and her home. He proceeded at once to fulfill his preaching obligations. Now a father himself, Charles felt the same way about his beloved Susie, and the boy's spiritual development was of utmost importance to both of them, so she would set about it with a passion. Her biographer would say, Mrs. Spurgeon was a faithful trainer of her twin sons in the Christian doctrine. She had the joy of seeing both of them, brought to the Lord at an early age. Thomas, her son, would write later, I trace my early conversion directly to my mother's earnest pleadings and her bright example. On Sunday nights, specifically, she would sit down with her boys and she would teach them the Bible. And they would also sing together. And uh, one of her favorite songs was, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He says, when she would come to the chorus, she would say to us, dear boys of mine, I have no reason to suppose that you are yet trusting Christ. You will, I trust, and I hope, in answer to our earnest prayers, but until you definitely do, you may not say or sing, I do believe that Jesus died for me. It's just as wrong to sing a lie as it is to say one. And then she would sing the song all by herself every Sunday night. Thomas says that he could not wait for the day until he could tell his mother of his decision to follow Christ and he would get to sing these lines with her. And here are the lines she would never let him sing. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me and that on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. Well, both boys became Christians, and they were baptized by their father at the Metropolitan Tabernacle when they were 18, and both boys went into ministry full-time and were pastors. In fact, Thomas would become the pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle when his father died. Well, as you can see, Susie was an amazing woman, but that doesn't mean that every single day... She was 100% amazing. There were a couple examples of times when she stumbled a bit, which is helpful for us to see those occasionally. And uh, one of these times was a time when Charles was expected to leave on an extended trip yet again. And she says the tears started to flow as he started to walk out the door. Charles turned to her and he said, oh wifey, "'Do you think that when any children of Israel "'brought a lamb to the Lord's altar as an offering "'that they stood and they wept over it "'as they laid it down?' "'Of course not,' she replied. "'And he firmly but tenderly said to her, "'Don't you see you're giving me to God "'by letting me preach the gospel to these poor sinners? "'Do you think he likes to see you cry over your sacrifice?' And she says that she rarely, if ever, let the tears flow ever again. Well, during those first years of marriage, they loved to travel together. He was preaching all over Europe to thousands of people, and she went right there with him. It was her joy to serve next to him all the days that she could, until about 12 years into marriage when her health started to deteriorate. Charles was called away more and more often, and because she couldn't, function, he had to go without her, and she had to stay home. We don't know exactly what was happening with her, but we get a couple indications. One is that Susie and Charles loved children, and yet those two boys were the only ones they ever had. We also know that she was by on by the state-of-the-art, most famous OBGYN of the time. So we can assume that she had some kind of a female issue. Maybe she had endometriosis, but we know that she was in constant pain all of her life, and that she was bedridden from the age of 35. She was basically shut in from 35 on for the rest of her life. Well, because of this, she framed another scripture. This was the scripture she framed and put in her room, Isaiah 48:10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction." Charles says that it was a truth not only written on their wall but on their hearts. Susie was so sick that she was unable to leave her bedroom for the next couple decades. She wasn't able to go with her husband and never hear him preach again. She was never able to attend church regularly. She never got to see the thousands of people who hung on his every word week after week after week. She sat there and, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but that, that would be pretty trying, you know? What would she do, you know? This was the joy of her life, as to stand with her husband, not on the stage, but from the floor and just be there for him and pray for him. Would she cry, would she complain, would she curl up in a ball? I hope you know enough about her already to say no, absolutely not. That is not what she did. Like every other challenge in Susie's life, she faced this one with faith, and she leveraged it for the glory of God. She would compare God's servant's suffering with the storm. She said, it was like the storm that came up on the Sea of Galilee where the disciples were tossed to and fro and they cried out in fear to Jesus. She says, even though sometimes a Christian's faith may fail, it will never forsake us. Even if it seems like he's asleep at the cushion next to us, the, the pillow beneath his head is the omniscience of God she was certain that God managed the affairs of his kids and that he chose to permit or appoint things that concerned them. Well, just like everything else, Susie and Charles faced this trial together, this new crisis, and their love for each other only grew. They were separated more and more often and yet they wrote to each other, they prayed for each other, and they encouraged each other. Since she couldn't go to church anymore, Charles would spend every single Saturday night sitting next to her. They would crack open the commentaries, they would open the Bible up. They would learn together. They would He would prepare the sermon while she sat right next to him and learned right alongside him for the next day's sermon. It was an amazing time that she treasured all of her life. She says in those moments, Charles discipled her and she says he led me by green pastures and beside still waters. Then on one Saturday night, just like that, Charles was fretting because he came to a text in the scripture that he could not figure out how to preach. And uh, huh, this is a struggle. This, the struggle is real, OK? Pastors do go through this, and even the great Charles Spurgeon went through it, and he was so like, befuddled and frustrated that, you know, Susie said, "Hey, why don't you just get a fresh start tomorrow?" I'll get you up real early. We'll make sure you have lots of time. You just go to bed." Well, he did begrudgingly after she promised that she would wake him up early. Well, Susie went, he went to bed that night, and then Susie went to bed, and she was awakened in the middle of the night, hearing Charles talking in his sleep. All of a sudden, she realized he was preaching the passage that he couldn't figure out the night before. He was sitting there explaining his text that he had been racking his brain over all the time, so she started listening, and then she started writing notes so that she could help him and hand it to him in the morning and help him figure out his sermon. Well, she was so excited about all of this thing that God had done in the middle of the night that she was awake for hours. And she overslept. Well, the next morning, of course, when she was supposed to wake Charles and she woke him up much later than she was supposed to, he kind of freaked out, okay? And he said, oh, wifey, you said you would wake me early. Now see the time. Why did you let me sleep? What shall I do, what shall I do? Which, let me just tell you, is the nightmare of every pastor waking up on Sunday morning with nothing to say. (laughs) Well, even Spurgeon had that problem except that Susie was there to save the day and say, look at the notes, look here, you preached it last night to me. And whew, (laughs) crisis averted in the pastor's home. Well, Charles understood what a gift that Susie was, but he wanted to make sure that she knew that. So he wrote her love letters, and he wrote her love letters all the time. Here is one of them. He says, oh my dear one, None know how grateful I am to God for you. In all I have ever done for him, you have a large share. For in making me so happy, you have fit me for service. Not an ounce of power has ever been lost to the good cause through you. I have served the Lord far more and never less because of your sweet companionship. The Lord God Almighty bless you now and forever. Well, throughout their marriage, Charles' ministry plate only grew Bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more overwhelming. And Susie's did too, of course, until she got sick. She would always be remembered as the wife of the most amazing and greatest preacher of all time, Charles Spurgeon. But because of one particular groundbreaking ministry, she's going to be remembered all on her own for something she did. She um, did this ministry as a shut-in for 30 years of her life. But because of her ministry, people got saved. People got encouraged, people got equipped all over the world. In fact, you know the name Charles Spurgeon partly because of her and what she did. Here's how it happened. It was the summer of 1875, and Charles basically dropped in her lap his very first book. It was a book called Lectures for My Students. Some of you might know this book. He dropped it in her lap, this first publication, And he asked her, what do you think of this? She said, I wish I could put it in the hands of every pastor in England. He said, well then do it. What will you give to make that happen? Well, she realized that she had some pocket change that she had been saving and was in a drawer somewhere and she counted it all out and she discovered that she could buy 100 copies of that brand new book from Charles Spurgeon. And that was the moment that her precious ministry called the Book Fund began. You see, the church was in such a bad state at that moment in history, sad to say, but most pastors, many pastors, had not been able to purchase a new book in some 10 years. Charles said, does anyone wonder why preachers are sometimes so dull? (laughs) Well, Susie decided it was time to change all that and she was gonna be the one to do it. She understood the need for good books Her husband would read six books a week, every week of his life. He would write 135 titles, and he would publish 63 volumes of sermons. They were a book-loving family, right? All the way around. Add to that that every Saturday night, they spent reading books together, and learning and growing together from the Bible and good resources. She wanted other pastors to have the same opportunity and the same kind of resources that she and Charles had, and she knew that their congregations would be blessed and benefited by it. Well, word got out pretty soon, right away, in fact, that Susie was giving books away, (laughs) right? You hear that someone's giving books away? You wanna be a part of that. People started learning Susie's gonna give books away. She's got a new ministry going. Well, the requests came pouring in. She handled all of them herself from her bed. One month, she handled 700 letters of request for resources. Well, in order to receive a package of books from Susie Spurgeon, you would have to, each pastor would have to meet a certain criteria. The pastor had to make a salary that was below a certain level. They had to be sound biblical doctrine-believing pastors. And then, of course, they had to actually be a pastor in order to receive this. And Susie was not afraid to reject someone who sent her a letter and did not meet those three criteria. But if they met the challenge, then she would send them out a package of books, a package of sermons, and a handwritten letter from her. She worked tirelessly from her bed as her health dictated. Stories of what God was doing in the pastor's lives and the church's lives poured in, as well as um, needs for funds, of course, and they were all published in Spurgeon's magazine. It was called The Trowel and the Sword. In 1881, that year alone, 7,000 books were sent out and 10,000 sermons were sent out by Susie. In the next 27 years that she would work in this ministry, almost three decades, 200,000 books would be sent out to pastors, and 25,000 pastors would receive resources from her hand. This is the room in her home where all the magic happened, the book fund magic. Charles wrote, I gratefully adore the goodness of our Heavenly Father in directing my beloved wife to a work that has been to her fruitful in unutterable happiness. Our gracious Lord has ministered to a suffering child in the most effective manner. Let every believer accept that for most human trials, the best relief is to be found in the self-sacrificing work for Jesus Christ. Well, the book fund didn't just help pastors. It restored purpose and meaning to Susie's life. She found she could make a real difference. She was the bookkeeper, the office manager, the inventory clerk, and the corresponding secretary. It was a mammoth task. But through it all, she got the gospel out and good, solid Bible teaching, and she encouraged people, and the name of Charles Spurgeon spread all over the world. Because of the weight of Charles' great ministry, and because of the theological debates he was involved in, and because of the public criticism. And because of his health challenges, it became important for Charles Spurgeon to basically take a break every single winter for a few months to the south of France. He had to get out of damp, wet, cold London for a few months. And unfortunately, as I've already told you, Susie was in no shape to do that with him. So he would go for three months at a time and spend the winters in France while she stayed in London. It was a bitter pill. They only wanted to be together, but Because of Charles' increased sufferings, he had to go. These trips were like necessary for his survival. He would go there to rest and recuperate and write. That happened for 15 straight years until in 1891, Susie was finally strong enough to go with him. She had been shut in for 20 years at that point. And she rallied this one winter to go with him. They were full of joy to be able to share these simple pleasures just sitting next to each other to the woman and man that they love. He was 57, she was 59, and in that day and age, they were plump, they were sickly, and they were elderly. But they sat next to each other, and they enjoyed this time, this winter in France. They were radiant as they spent this time together, but sadly, as they sat there for three months, at the very end of that three month period of time, Charles got um, more and more quiet, and he eventually, died. He had preached his last sermon on that trip in France on New Year's of 1892. He was, like I said, 57 years old. They had just celebrated their 37th wedding anniversary and her 60th birthday. but. Pretty soon he was gone. He was gone to see his savior and to receive his reward. But she would reflect back on that as being the greatest blessing of her life that God allowed her to be there that winter and spend those three months taking care of the man that she loved. Condolences would come from all over the world when Charles Spurgeon died, and on his casket there were written the words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. After caring for him for those three months, she did not have what it took to go the thousand mile journey back to London for his funeral, so she wasn't there when 100,000 people came to say goodbye to the Prince of Preachers in London as his carriage with his body passed by she stayed. She would have been overwhelmed, her family and friends were sure, so they had her stay. Well, when he was gone, she wasn't sure what she would do, but she continued to work with the book fund, and pretty soon she got to do a contribution in a way she never had thought she would before, and that is after Charles died, she became a writer. She began writing books, and the very first one was her masterpiece, basically. It's a famous book called C.H. Spurgeon's Biography. She would become the, uh, the editor and the chief contributor. She would take his journals, his notes, his sermons, and her own memories and write her version, the biography of her great husband, would inspire thousands of people. It, it, it is a four volume set, it's a monster, but it would inspire thousands of people to live and love and preach and serve like her dear husband had. Eventually she would write five more books two of them on the book fund, three devotionals, but she made sure that in each one that her listeners and her readers knew that God could be trusted. That was her main message. God can be trusted, you are never alone. Well, she would miss Charles terribly, but she would take refuge in God and hope in his word, and she was so excited that she still got the chance to make a difference. And God wasn't done with this spiritually ambitious person yet, because at 63 years old, she uh, had one more big job to do and that is she had gone to a little city called Bexhill. She'd gone there, it was a little ways from her home because her house was under repair, and she was feeling pretty good that one Sunday and she decided she wanted to go to church. So she uh, asked somebody, hey, where's the Baptist church in town? And uh, she found out they didn't have one. She was like, well, that can't be. So she decided to pray. In fact, she prayed for an entire year when she went back home. And um, pretty soon, one of her friends from the pastor's college that was studying there came and told her that he was looking for a ministry post. And she went, aha, I have a plan, I have a pastor, I have a place, let's go plant. She showed up in Bexhill and she got a bunch of eager people to get behind her and she decided she was gonna plant a church in that city. So that's what she did. She threw her support and her prayers behind this church plant. She was there the first service. She was there when they built their building. And uh, six years after this, she would die, and this is what the church would put on a plaque on the wall to honor Mrs. Spurgeon. It says, this tablet is erected by the church and the congregation meeting here in grateful memory of Mrs. C.H. Spurgeon, who entered glory October 22, 1903. Through her initiative, under God, this church was founded, and largely by her liberality or her generosity, these buildings were erected. You know, this gal was no ordinary gal. She was no ordinary pastor's wife but I'm confident that C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, could not have done all that he did the way that he did it if it had not been for her. Oh yes, he was a gifted man, and of course he had God behind her, but God used her to be a support to him, to help him do all that. He called her an angel of God, and that's exactly what she was to him. She supported him in sorrow. She defended him in persecution. She prayed for him in weakness and encouraged him in his labor. She made sure his message got out and that he got introduced to the whole world. She did most of that while she was suffering greatly. She bore much fruit because she was not willing to take her talents and burying them in the sand just because she was hurting. She did great things for God. Her life and her contribution was phenomenal, and most of what you've heard today comes from a book that was actually recently published by Ray Rhodes called "Susie: The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. Now, they are in a bookstore right down the hall if you'd like a copy of that, or if you have little ones, This is a board book all about Susie's book fund, and it's called The Woman Who Loved to Give Books. And it'll tell her story of the book fund to the younger generation. Um, The bookstore will have copies of these, but we also have one raffle in here with both books and one in the other room, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Susie joined Charles in heaven 11 years after his death. Her body rests next to his and she has some words chosen uh, for her on her tombstone. They are words written by John Newton who was the author of the great hymn Amazing Grace that we got to sing today. But this is from another hymn that John Newton wrote. It's called "Begone Unbelief and these are the last words, the very last verse of the song. This is what's written on her tombstone. It says, since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine food. Though painful at present, it will cease before long. And then, then, oh, how pleasant, the conqueror's song. Susie Spurgeon is most definitely a conqueror. She most definitely heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, But it wasn't just because she was some good soil way back when, when she first decided to follow Christ. It's because she had both the drive and the desire. She had the ambition to do something great for God, and she spent her life doing that. And because of that, she bore much fruit. Her goal was to expend her whole life in pleasing God and to help her very gifted husband do the same. She did that with diligence, with joy, with passion, with enthusiasm all the days of her life, even when she was in excruciating pain. She lived her life for him, and she bore much fruit. It is my prayer that her life would inspire you. First of all, to be that good soil. She would want you to make sure that you aren't paying for your sins yourself. That you've got Jesus paying for him, because he offers to do that for you. But then secondly, she would want you to take, if you're a good soil here, and you're already locked on, she would want to urge you and encourage you to be giving your whole effort to obeying him, to serving him, and to doing all that he wants you to accomplish, just like she did. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for women like Susie Spurgeon, who, um, she was an ordinary woman. She was just like us. And she had frailties just like we did. But she took them and she used them And she sees opportunities because of them. And uh, she's a great example for us. God, I pray for those in this room who, they are the path. Or they're even the rocky or the thorny soil. And they don't have things right with you. They're not locked on forever with you. They don't have the assurance that that you're going to take care of their sin. Because all of us will stand before you so God, we do pray for those that need to get that right because that's the most important thing. Help them to have the courage to talk to someone. And then God, I pray for those here that are good soil, that are real Christians, that Susie Spurgeon would inspire them to do more than they thought they could. She was just an ordinary woman, but she gave it her all. She was determined and compelled to do everything she could to bear as much fruit as she possibly could may we learn to be like her. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.